I want to welcome you all to church one more time and welcome you back into our sermon series, verse by verse, going through the book of Ephesians. I love this book. It's become one of my favorite books in the Bible. There's so much riches in this book for us to gain from and eat from today. Uh, a few months ago, actually, it was longer than that, that we started this book in chapter 1. We talked about the blessed life that's found in Ephesians 1. We talked about moving from death to life in Ephesians 2. In the second half of Ephesians 2, how we're all now one in Christ. And now we get ready to jump into Ephesians chapter 3 today. I want to just go ahead and refresh our memory with a couple things about this awesome book so that we can know What's, what we're talking about, who we're talking about, and what's going on in Ephesians 3 so we can have the right context. First off, the author of this book is a guy by the name of Paul, the apostle, pastor, church planter, Paul. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, as Paul reminds us that he's the one writing. He says, I, Paul, am writing this letter. He autographs it for us to know who is the author of this book. Written in Anno Domini A.D., the year that Jesus was born, A.D. 62. So 62 years after the miraculous virgin birth of Christ, the Apostle Paul planted this amazing church in Ephesus. It was a smaller church, and Paul wrote a letter to this church. And how cool is it that we have a copy of it, and we get to learn from it. So written by the man Paul, inspired by God himself for us today. The location was written from a prison cell. Or maybe while Paul was on house arrest in Rome, you can see in Acts chapter 19 when Paul went and ministered to the Ephesians in the city of Ephesus. He started a riot in the city. It was crazy. He just started to witness to people that were making uh, profit off of unjust gain and selling little idol statues. And then all of a sudden things started to happen and there was a riot in the city. And when you start a riot in the city, you get thrown in jail because of it. That's what happened with Paul. We find him in Acts 28, the ending of the book of Acts, uh, in prison, chained up. So we believe that he probably wrote this letter during that time. Timing seems to match up there. The layout of the book of Ephesians is pretty simple. The first three chapters focus in on our position in Christ. The last three talk about the practice of our position in Christ. So our position simply is this. If you think about us in the shape of a cross, right? vertically, positionally, when you're in Christ. Here's what that means. That means that you become a mini Christ. See, right now, if you're not in Christ, when God looks at you, here's what he sees. He sees somebody who's sinful, somebody who's separated, somebody who has the wrath of God remaining on you, somebody who will be separated from God for eternity, who, who needs to be saved. But when you're in Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, and you become saved and you become a new person. When God sees you positionally, all the things that are Jesus's are yours. So Jesus is holy. You're now holy. Jesus is righteous. Now you're righteous. Jesus is blameless. Now you're blameless. You're now forgiven because you're in Christ. You're now redeemed because you're in Christ. You're positionally right with God. You're blessed. You're a new person. You're redeemed and forgiven and set free. That's your position before God. So when God sees you, he sees that. Paul's writing to the Ephesians trying to remind them of that great reality. The second half of the book is the practice. In other words, he's saying, since that's true, live like it. If you're forgiven, live like you're forgiven. If you're redeemed, live like you're redeemed. If you're a new person, live like you're a new person. Amen? 
that's kind of the heartbeat of the book of Ephesians. The theme that we landed on for this specific book is this. The eternal purpose of God lived out through the church. As I just began to reread through Ephesians chapter 1 through 6, I said, man, the major theme that's happening here in Ephesians is this. God is displaying his eternal purpose from the beginning of creation to the end. He had a purpose. And now he's showing off the purpose through us. That the angels were waiting to see what the purpose of it all was. And now the church is displaying it. That's what Ephesians is all about. Now this is a glorious book. And don't just take my word for it. I want to give you some commentary insight as to why this book is so strong. Now Bob Diefendorf says it like this. The Rolls Royce of the epistles is the book of Ephesians. So Paul wrote 13 different epistles. So you see the Corinthians, the Thessalonians, the Colossians, the Corinthians, and then the Ephesians. Out of all those, scholar Bob says, man, this is the Rolls Royce of them all. Right? F.S. Bruce says it like this, that this book, Ephesians, is the quintessence of Paulinism. Everybody say quintessence. It's just a cool word to say. I don't know. C.H. Dodd said it's the crown of Paulinism. William Hendrickson said it like this. He said that this book is the divinest composition of man. So when we're reading this book, this is a strong book to read. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this famous revivalist preacher, said it like this. He said, it's very difficult to speak of Ephesians in a controlled manner because of its greatness and because of its sublimity. The word sublimity just means its exaltation. Many have tried to describe it. One, one writer has described it as the crown and climax of Pauline theology. Another has said it's the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate compendonium of the holy Christian faith. Try to say that three times fast. He says, what a language. And it is by no means exaggerated. This book right here is crucial for our understanding of what it is that we actually believe. John MacArthur would take it a step further in his commentary. He would say that Ephesians has rightly been titled The Believer's Bank and the Treasure House of the Bible. I don't know about you, but I want to read that book. He says, This beautiful letter tells Christians of their great riches, inheritance, and fullness in Jesus Christ and in his church. It unfolds for them the infinite blessings they possess in Christ and how they, they can claim and enjoy those possessions. So we lock in here and we jump back into this book of Ephesians, the treasure house, the believer's bank of the Bible. And now let us in humility learn from this book. We've, we've, we've covered chapter one, the blessed life. We've covered chapter two, talking about moving from death to life and now how we're a new body. And today we enter into chapter three. This is going to be the 24th sermon in our series through Ephesians. If you're ready, say ready. If you're hungry, say let's eat. Before we eat, we pray. Father God, thank you for your word. As we begin, as we, as we prepare to eat from it now, God, you say that man doesn't live off bread alone. Man lives off your word. Help us to become nourished from your word. Help us to become stronger because of your word. Open our hearts today. Speak to us. Just pray that prayer right now. Just say, Lord, speak to me. Lord, speak to me, God. 
We don't need to hear another message from a man. We need to hear a message from the word, from God himself through his word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Paul begins this letter by saying, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in the other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, this mystery. Everybody say, this mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I want to preach a message to you this morning that I'm titling the stewardship of every believer. The stewardship of every believer. Now, I don't know if you're like me or not, but I don't use the word stewardship in my everyday language. I didn't even know really what that word altogether meant in its fullness. I know one thing's for sure, that we have a stewardship team here at our church, but I was even gaining more insight at the power of this team as I've studied this word. Paul says that he was given a stewardship. I want to talk about what that stewardship looks like today. The word stewardship by definition means the job of supervising or taking care of something from the Oxford Pocket Dictionary. Webster's defines stewardship as the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Dictionary.com defines stewardship as the responsible overseeing and protection of something considered worth caring for and perceiving. So what does it mean to have stewardship? To have stewardship over your house or to have stewardship over your family or to have stewardship over your finances. It means that you take serious the thing that you're stewarding. That you give careful consideration and insight to the thing that you're stewarding because you've been given a God-given responsibility to steward it. What I'm learning here in Ephesians 3 is that all of us have been given a stewardship. And I want to talk about what those things are as we look. Ephesians 3 verse 1 and 2 says it like this. We start out here, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard the stewardship of God's grace, that was given to me for you. Let me just highlight these first few words. It says, for this reason. For this reason. We need to lock in and be reminded at the power of this reason. I don't think we'll ever fully understand it, church family, the reason why Paul wrote this letter or the reason why Paul wrote this first sentence unless we look back a little bit at what he just said in Ephesians 2. I want us to jump in in context. So Ephesians 2, verse 18 and 19 say it like this. Matter of fact, let's read it together. Are you ready? One, two, three. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. A couple things in this scripture I think are dynamic for us to know. First off, it says, for through who? Through him. We can just highlight this word him for a second. For through him. Who is him? Him is Jesus. Going through him, we get 
somewhere. For through him, through Christ, we both. Now, who is we both? We both refers to Gentiles and Jews. Now, Gentiles, by definition, are anybody that's not Jewish, right? They could have any type of background. They just cannot be Jewish. So in the Bible, they could have been Samaritan. They could have had a, a, a different background or origin other than Jewish. They could have been Arab. They, they could have been from a different city, a different culture, a different background, a different blood. And at this point in the culture, especially in Ephesus, there was heavy heavy hostility and there still is today but in this time it was at the all-time high so when you read we both I want you to think Crips and Bloods I want you to think Democrats Republicans especially today some of y'all just got uncomfortable don't get uncomfortable I, let me tell you something it was so heavy right there's there is a, a, a story that the Jews once looked at Gentiles as people who were just fuel for hell. It said anybody that wasn't considered Jewish by blood was considered not a child of God and was not able to have access to him. I even remember when my wife and I were in Israel and I was playing professional basketball out there and I had a dual citizenship with my background. And I remember giving an Israeli car and one day... We, we drove into a Palestinian Arab zone. And I remember the looks that we were getting was crazy. And then somebody had to tell me, like, dude, you know you have an Israeli car. And I was like, what's that? What, what, is that a problem? They're like, yeah, man, get out of here, right? Because the hostility was so heavy. And in this culture, it was there. And so what happens is Paul is saying this. Now through him, Jesus we both, Gentiles and Jews, right? They would be on two separate sides of the streets looking at each other with a crooked eye, right? Gentiles looking at Jews like, don't look at me. Jews looking at Gentiles like, don't look at me. And now they're at church next to each other. And Paul's saying, how does that happen? Well, it's through him that we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Think about this word access. Everybody say access. Access, it's a beautiful word, this idea that through him we have access. The definitions for the word access are to be free, to have permission to enter, to have ability to go in. At one point, Gentiles had to stay outside of the congregation. They could never go in. They were separated from going in. People could hear the worship from outside. They couldn't go in now in Christ. We both have access. Isn't that the beauty of the church? Is that people may not look like you, may not think like you, may not dress like you, may not like the same food or music or things that you do, maybe a different age and different culture, but here's the crazy thing, that through him we both are one. One in spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers. You ever heard somebody say like, yo, don't be a stranger. That's what it was. Jews and Gentiles were strangers, aliens. There was no crossing or connection. Now he says this, you're no longer strangers or aliens. You're now fellow citizens. Like, where's your citizenship? It's in Christ. With the saints and members of the household of God. How dope is it that you get membership? Like, God's like, I'm giving you membership. I'm giving you a member card. And the person next to you looks completely different, but he got one too. 
and she got one too. And that's where we pick it up today in Ephesians chapter 3 when Paul says, for this reason. The, the, the reason was that there was heavy hostility in Ephesus, like there would maybe even be in Las Vegas and in different places around our world. Heavy hostility. And Paul's saying, it's this reason that I wanted to write to you. Because you needed to know God's heart. He says, this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now this is interesting language, isn't it? That the Apostle Paul would write to the Ephesians and say, you know what? I, Paul, am a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. A prisoner of who? What does the scripture say? A prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now this is important for you to understand because I want you to catch the, the, the stewardship that Paul has here over his perspective. For our note takers in the room, let me give you the first point today. First point is this, steward your perspective. Here's what that means. Take responsible over your perspective. T take treatment and care over your perspective because your perspective matters. Your perspective will change your outcome. Your perspective will change how you feel. Your perspective will change how you think. I would be tempted to think if I just went to prison because I was doing ministry, right? Paul got saved. He started sharing the gospel and he ended up in chains. I would be tempted to think, what happened, God? Like now I'm like stuck to this like jail cell and all I was doing was trying to be faithful, how did I end up in here? Now I'm a prisoner of Rome. Now I'm a prisoner of Caesar. Now I'm a prisoner of Nero. But that's not his perspective, is it? Notice that Paul, even though he's in chains, his perspective doesn't change. Right? He says, look, here's my perspective. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. What that means is this, that even though I'm in chains, I know who's in control. Even though my circumstance tells me that I'm in bad shape, I'm not in bad shape because of who I'm chained to. I'm not a prisoner to this cell. I'm not a prisoner to this guard. I'm not a prisoner to this city. If anything, I'm a prisoner to Jesus. And my perspective tells me that when I'm, if I'm chained up in Christ, I can still do all things through him. Amen? It's a perspective that you have to have. You choose what you want to perceive. You could either, either perceive it as I'm a, I'm a prisoner of this circumstance or I'm chained to Jesus and he won't let me down because he doesn't know how to do that. He can only hold me up. Tim Keller in his commentary on the Ephesians says it like this. He says, Paul's joy lies not in his circumstances, but in his salvation. He praises God joyfully rather than bemoaning his imprisonment. I want you to change your perspective, church. Because some of you are in jobs that you're bemoaning, if that's such a word in your life. Change your perspective and see that God has placed you there for a reason. I know as an athlete, I would oftentimes have to change my perspective. We'd be losing a game and I'd get down. And God would say, change your perspective. I would be not in the game, sitting on the bench. God would say, change your perspective. I wouldn't be playing as good as I would hope to. Change your perspective. That God is still in control if you're attached to him. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The perspective is crucial. Steward your perspective. We see this all throughout the Bible. 
One of my favorite perspective moments is David and Goliath. Maybe you're familiar with this story, right? 1 Samuel chapter 17, we see young David, and he shows up on this scene, and now King Saul, the big buff bad king, is leading the Israel army, and they run up against this 10-foot monster guy named Goliath. And Goliath says, anybody who steps foot, I'm going to slay him. And so Saul now is scared because his perspective is driving his fear. David shows up and says, how can you be scared if God goes with us? His perspective led him to pick up some rocks. Amen? So your perspective will drive your actions. Your actions will determine your outcome. Next thing you know, you see Goliath on the ground with his head cut off. It was because David had the right perspective. Right? He told the storm how big his God is. He didn't tell God how big the storm was. God, the storm is so big. I'm chained up. What are you going to do? Tell, tell the storm how big your God is. And watch him move. Another perspective moment in the Bible that I love is in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3, we see these, th- these three dudes. I call them the hot boys. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Great names, right? Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And here's their story. Right? You see, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, this Gentile king, they said, we won't bow our knee to you. We won't worship you. King Nebuchadnezzar said, anybody who doesn't worship me will get thrown in this fiery furnace. And they said, well, we're not going to bow our knee. And he said, all right, well, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And this was Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego's response. They said it this way. They said, you can throw us into the fiery furnace, but our God will rescue us. But even if he doesn't, he's still God. And so King Nebuchadnezzar was like, what is that? That's different. That's strange. Throw him into the fire. Now watch what happens. Next thing you know, King Nebuchadnezzar has a window into the fiery furnace. He even turned it up seven degrees, right? He said, I want this thing to be as hot. I want to see these guys burn. All of a sudden, he looks into the fiery furnace. He sees not one, not two, not three guys. He sees a fourth in there with them. He taps his guard and says, who's the fourth dude in there? They say, I don't know. He looks like the son of God. Who do you think it was with him? Jesus decided to join him in the fiery furnace. It's a perspective thing. You invite Christ into your season. You invite Christ into your circumstance when you have the right perspective. Saying, even if, God will still do it. One of my favorite perspective moments has to do with the homie Abraham. Abraham is in the book of Genesis. He gets raised up, right? All his life he wants a son. He just wants to have a son with his wife, Sarah. Sarah just wants to have a son with her husband, Abraham. They're now 100 years old. It's not looking good, is it? Till one day an angel shows up and says, hey, Sarah, next year at this time you'll have a baby boy. And she laughs in her heart. But it says then she believed God. Her perspective shifted because the angel said, hey, nothing's impossible with God. Her perspective shifted. And next thing you know, a year later, she had a baby boy named Isaac. Now watch what happens. This is going to blow your mind. right? As Isaac began to grow up, God then gives this calling to Abraham, what does he call him to do? He calls him to sacrifice his only son. He says, Abraham, I want you to take your only son, Isaac, who, you, who you've waited for, you love so much. I want you to bring him to the altar. I want you to set him down on the altar, and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham doesn't ask why. He doesn't complain. He takes his son, and he goes all the way up the mountain. And right before he's ready to be obedient to God and sacrifice his son, God says, do not lay a hand on your son. 
And all of a sudden, he provides a ram out of the bush as a sacrifice for this offering to the Lord. Now, that, that story, what it is, is really just a shadow of what God would do. Right? God would send his only son and would take him up the mountain and sacrifice his son Jesus on the altar for our sin. The Abraham story is really just a picture of the gospel. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to see Abraham's perspective. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Abraham, by faith, took his son up to the altar, knowing that even if he were to kill him, God would still raise him to life. What Abraham did was saying, my perspective is greater than my fear. My perspective in the God I believe in is bigger than my circumstance. Because of that, the Apostle Paul is able to tell the Ephesian church who is worried about him. They're saying, hey, you started this church, now you're in jail. What are we supposed to do? And Paul's saying, hey, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's in control. We see this also in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. Here's what Paul says to the Philippian church. If you're ready, say ready. He says, Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Can you believe that? Paul says, hey, look, I know that everybody's upset that I'm in chains, but my imprisonment is actually for him. He says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, he goes, now by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul tells the Philippian church, he goes, hey, I realized it, that the only way that God was going to ever deliver the gospel to the guards in the, in the prison was if he sent me. That's why I'm there. Paul changed his perspective. He saw his perspective, his story, as somebody who was sent, not because he was just imprisoned. He was a missionary focused. Would encourage you to change your perspective. If God's in it, you're still in it. Amen? You may feel like you're down and out. You may feel like you're beat down and can't get up. If God's in it, you're still in it. Paul's saying, I'm in prison, but I'm not done. I'm just getting started. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Let me give you one more verse before we move past this point. I think it's important for you to be reminded of this verse. It's Colossians 3.23. Come on, let's read it off the screen together. Ready? Whatever you do. Say it again. Say it again. Say whatever you do. Again, whatever you do. One more time. Whatever you do. Look at the person next to you and say whatever you do. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Whatever it is that you do. If you work at a restaurant, if you work at a school, if you work at a gym, if you work at a church, if you work as an officer, as, it, it, whatever it is that you do, work heartily. means with all your heart. It's for the Lord and not for man. That's a change in your perspective. Let me go ahead and lead us into the second part of the verse here today. As we continue reading in Ephesians 3, Let's go ahead and, and look at the, into verse 3 through 6. It continues by saying, actually in verse number 2, he says, A prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul says, have you heard of the stewardship that was given to me 
for you. This second part of the message that I would say is this, to not just steward your perspective, but to steward your story. Steward your story. I'll, I'll be completely transparent with you, especially in, in my domain as a pastor and Bible teacher. I see and hear people all the time try to criticize the scriptures. Is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible truly historical? I would say yes and yes. Is the Bible authentic? Is the Bible real? I would say yes and yes. But people still scrutinize it and criticize it. Is Jesus really the God-man? Is he really the Savior? Is he really the Holy One? Is he really the one who died and rose again? I'd say yes, 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 and yes. But people still question and criticize. I'll tell you what. People can't criticize and question your story. All of us have a story. All of us have our own testimony as how the Lord has worked in our life and set us free. We see in Paul's story, he says it like this. He says, I'm assuming, Ephesians, that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying that God had grace on me and gave me a calling to you and has made me a steward of my testimony. If you're not familiar with Paul's testimony, I would say it's a marvelous thing to learn. In Acts chapter 9, you see his testimony start. See, the apostle Paul was once known as Saul. And Saul was someone who was breathing death threats on the church. So in other words, anybody who was claiming to believe in Jesus, Saul was going to throw you in prison. If not, he might even throw you to the death sentence. Saul had that type of power in his city and in his culture. And so in Acts chapter 9, we see Paul, and he's on his way to Damascus, and he's got his letter in hand. He's bringing this letter to every house. He's going door to door, not to evangelize, but to tell people, if you are believing in Jesus, you could be thrown into prison. And he goes, I'll personally do it. Now, while he's on his way, this big bright light hits him, and he falls down. And he says, Lord, is that you? And this voice appears to him. It's a revelation. This voice says, it's me, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says, he's blown away. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And it was in that moment that Saul became blind. And he continued to Damascus. And he sat there for three days, not eating a thing, not touching a thing, just sitting there. And it was in this time that God spoke to a young man named Ananias. And he said, Ananias, I want you to go find this guy Saul. And I want you to go lay hands on him and heal his eyes. And I want you to preach the gospel to him. And Ananias goes, do you know who that guy is? And God said, change your perspective. I'm in it. And so Ananias goes to Saul. And here's what God said to Ananias in Acts 9. He says, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Later on in Acts 22, 13 chapters later, the apostle Paul is in prison, and now he's a church planning pastor, and he looks at Caesar as he's in chains, and he says, God spoke to me. He says, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. What's my point in sharing these two verses with you? Here's my point that Paul had a story, and he felt compelled to share it. He had to steward his story. So in Ephesians chapter 3, he's saying, God gave me the stewardship over my story. And I would encourage you to do that same thing, right? To, to own 
your story, to own this reality that, that God has given you a calling and it's a story that's powerful and nobody can take it away. I know for me, oftentimes I find myself doing ministry in sports and atmospheres because here's my story, right? As a college student playing college basketball, not knowing Jesus, separated from God, God spoke to me through an FCA ministry and through some free pizza and said, I'm calling you to take the gospel back to your home and to share your story. And so because of that, now we're involved with FCA. It's a full circle moment, and we're able to share our story. So I know for some people in here, you're businessmen and businesswomen. Share your story. Steward your story in the business realm. For teachers and administrators, steward your classroom. Steward your office space to use your story. Nobody can take anything away from your story, amen? That I would encourage you to change your perspective and to steward your story. That's what Paul is writing about in Ephesians chapter 3. As we continue, we'll make our way to our final point here today. Let's look at briefly at verses 3 through 6. Ephesians 3, verse 3 through 6. Paul says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I love what he says here. He says, this mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. This concept of mystery, that there's actually a mystery that we see here in the scriptures. And what is this mystery? And why is it a mystery? Is God a mysterious God? I think in some ways he is. For thousands of years, God was declaring that one day he would save his people. But it was a mystery as to how he would do it. Until one day, born of a virgin, Jesus came. And Jesus made his way into earth. And he revealed the mystery. Paul is talking about how this mystery was made known to him by revelation. This mysterion. We see this all throughout the scriptures. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, we, talk, we, we, we see Paul talking about the mystery. He says how he was making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. The mystery is unity. The mystery, again, is us sitting next to people that are not like us in church and yet growing together. The mystery is going to a charge group and connecting in community. And you would probably never hang out with these people ever, but you're there together in the home, sitting next to each other, sharing a meal. That's the mystery. The mystery is that we're... We're not all alike, but we all have one thing in common. What is it? It's Christ. Christ himself is the mystery. Let me prove it to you. We're almost done. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 through 27. Paul says, according to the stewardship. There's that word again, isn't it? He says, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make known the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is, can you say it with me? Which is 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is this, that Christ lives in us and we share the same body. We share the same membership. We share the same covenant. This mystery was made known to us. He continues in Colossians 2, verse 2 through 3. He says, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Maybe today you would say, man, I want to grow in wisdom. I'm trying to grow in knowledge. I'm trying to grow, pastor. Here's what you need to do. You need to grow in Christ. Because as you grow in Christ, you grow in wisdom. Amen? As you grow in Christ, you grow in knowledge. As you grow in Christ, you grow as a husband. As you grow in Christ, you grow as a mom. As you grow in Christ, you grow as a servant. As you grow in Christ, you grow as a steward of the promise that he has given you. That's the last point of the message today, is to steward your story, steward your perspective, but to steward his promise. How good is it that God has made a promise to you and I? That God has promised us something. You know what he's promised us? He's promised us that he'll never leave us. He's promised us that he'll never forsake us. He's promised us that he's with us right now. He's promised us that he's secured a place in heaven where you're gonna see people that may be different than you. But we'll be together. And we should begin to live like that now. That mystery is the eternal purpose of God on display for others to see. Sunday should no longer be the most segregated day in our country. Can you amen that? It, It should no longer be This is one type of church. This is another type of church. We should all be in Christ. And we might look differently. We might smell differently. We might think differently. We might like things differently. But here's where we come together. In Christ. That's the mystery. That's revealed to us. That's the promise of God for us. As we finish right here. I just want to encourage you with that. The promise of eternal life, 1 John 2.25, is made known to us in Christ. The promise of oneness together in Hebrews 13 is made known to us. Lastly, 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says this, all his promises, all his promises are yes in Christ and find their amen in Christ. He's made us a promise. Let's steward it, amen? Let's take it serious. Let's take his word serious. Let's take our story serious. Let's change our perspective. And let's steward the promise he's given us to be one in Christ. Let's pray.